Alex. <laughs> and the reality is, is that uh, these videos are, are funny examples of placing our confidence in the wrong things. But the, the reality is that spiritually speaking, when we place our confidence in the wrong things, it's not funny, but it's dangerous. In fact, it can be destructive for now and for eternity. And so really what I want us to think about this morning as we look into God's Word is what, where is our confidence spiritually? What are we trusting in? Who are we trusting in? What are we relying on? I mean, I mean, when we talk about confidence, basically, if you have confidence in something, you trust it, you believe in it, you, you put some reliance in it. In a sense, you know, a word picture for, for faith is resting your weight on something, just like that guy tried to rest his weight on the ladder and it didn't support him. And remember always... The issue with faith is not the amount of faith, but the object of our faith. It's what we're trusting in, it's what we put our confidence in, actually trustworthy. Is it actually strong enough to support us and to hold us up? Is it strong enough uh, to actually save us? That's, That's the issue. Because you can have all the faith in the world in something or someone, But if that thing or that person is not trustworthy, it's not going to do you any good. In fact, instead of helping you, it's going to hurt you. It's kind of like if you put your faith, put your money in the hands of a financial advisor who's either stupid or corrupt. You can trust that person all day long, but the amount of your faith is not going to make it work. The key is the object of our faith. And remember this, everybody has faith. It's just a question of who or what you're trusting in. It's not that like some people have faith, some people don't have faith. I don't buy that. It's the same thing. I used to think, you know, like only Christians worship. That's not true. Everybody worships. It's just a question of what are we worshiping? Is it worthy of our worship? What are we trusting in? Is it worthy of our trust? And so with that said, to to set this up, let's let's look in Philippians chapter 3. We've been walking through the book of Philippians and really, as we get into chapter 3, we're going to look at really at salvation for the next four weeks. Today, really, the focus is on justification. Next week is about sanctification, which is about our spiritual growth. The third week is about glorification, about when we go to heaven and what God does in us then. And then the fourth week it deals with some false teaching, but we're going to look at the true teaching for a few weeks before we dig into that. But here's what Paul says. He, 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 says, he starts out and he says, finally, and I kind of find this humorous as a preacher. This is finally, he's saying finally at the midpoint of the book. So when I do that, I've got like biblical precedent for it, right? Um, but actually, in the Greek, the word finally here means ask for the rest. It doesn't literally mean in, in, in conclusion. But he says, finally, my brethren, and he says this again, rejoice in the Lord, uh, as he keeps saying this through the book. He says, for me, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it, it is safe. In other words, I'm kind of repeating myself, but it's not tedious to me because it's safe for you. You really need to hear this. He's about to give a warning, 
And uh, verse 2 is, has some pretty strong language in it. It, it almost sounds insulting, but he, he's making a strong point here. And remember, people's eternal lives are at, at, at stake. I said this in one of the services last week. Sometimes it's unkind to be nice. And he's being blunt. And he says, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Uh, he's talking about false teachers. Beware of the mutilation. And then he starts verse 3 and he says, for we are the circumcision. And he's doing the same kind of thing uh, that he, he did in Galatians in, in more detail here. But there were these false teachers called the Judaizers who, who basically said, yeah, you need Jesus but you also need your works, you need uh, to keep the Mosaic law, you need to be circumcised. So it was a Jesus plus kind of religion. It was a grace plus kind of deal, a faith plus kind of deal. But what the New Testament teaches, what Paul teaches, is that salvation is Jesus alone. It's grace alone. It's faith alone. And so there's kind of a play on words here. He says, you know, we're the true uh, circumcision. We're the ones who are really right with God. Uh, these, these other people, he calls them the mutilation. And it's a word picture. It's a play on words. I kind of let you figure out the word picture there. But that, that's what he's saying. And, and, and so uh, he says, we're the circumcision. And, and I think Philippians 3.3, 3, if you just want a definition of a Christian, here you go. Who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. So you want a biblical definition of a Christian. You know, sometimes people think, well, it's a good person. That, that, that's a Christian, or, uh, you know, I've got it together, or I've not done this or that, or I do this or that, or I've got Christian values, or I go to church, or, you know, I know the slogans, or I've got the t-shirts, I've got the bumper stickers, I've got the figurines. Uh, a lot of times people make it into external things, but this would be a biblical definition of a Christian. A Christian is someone who boasts in Jesus Christ and has no confidence or no trust in their own self-effort for salvation. That's what it means to be a Christian. Someone who's boasting in, trusting in, confident in Jesus Christ and not yourself. That's what he's saying in this verse. He says, who worship God in the Spirit and that's the only way you can worship God, but we can only worship God through Jesus Christ. And when we're saved, we have the Holy Spirit, so we can worship Him in the power of the Spirit. But then I want to particularly focus on these other two phrases, because Paul here is building a foundation, I think, for what we're going to look at in the rest of the passage. He says, who rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. But the word rejoice here is not literally the, a word for joy, the, the word rejoice here literally means to, to boast in. To boast in. To boast in uh, Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about the word boasting, boasting is a word that speaks of identity. It, it speaks of affirmation. When, when I think of boasting, I think of stuff like... Um, you know, a, a, a coach giving you a pregame speech or a halftime pep talk to try to boost, boost you up. Or, uh, you know, back when you were in, in, in high school, you know, when you had pep rallies and there were speeches and games and, and cheerleaders and like, we're awesome, they're terrible, we're going to beat them, you know, all these kind of things. That's a boast. 
or a, a boast would be like, I think about Braveheart, you know, and the freedom speech. That's what boasting uh, is. It's, it's, it's to pump you up. It's to give you confidence in yourself uh, that, that you can do this. It, it, it could be stuff like, you know, self-affirmations. You know, I'm good. I'm good enough. I'm worth it. I'm valuable. I, I, I can handle that's, that's what boasting is. You say, what's wrong with that? Well, Paul said, God forbid that I boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Boasting is like confidence. There's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. It just depends on who we're boasting about. That's the issue. Is our boast in ourselves... In other words, are we going around saying, you know, how great we are and how we've got it together and I can do this? Or, or maybe sometimes boasting actually comes out of insecurity or not having a clear identity of trying to make ourselves feel better. But the issue is our boasting in ourselves, or is our boasting in, in, in Jesus Christ? Paul also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Starting in verse 26, he said, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world. And the things uh, which are despised, God has chosen. So uh, if you're here for some self-esteem affirmations today, here's what you need to know. We're base, weak, and foolish, but God still loved us and God still chose us. So there you go. But he says the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. But here's the purpose. That no flesh should glory, which is another translation of the same form of the same word. No flesh should boast in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That it is written, he who glories, he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. So is our boasting in ourselves or is our boasting in Christ? Is our boasting in what we have done or is our boasting in what Jesus did for us on the cross? Now, think for a minute. It's a crazy thing to talk about boasting in the cross. Why would you boast in an instrument of torture? I mean, Romans wouldn't speak of crucifixion in polite company because it was so horrific. The opponents of Christianity, since the very beginning up until today, mock the cross, make fun of that bloody religion. And isn't that understandable? I mean, what's there to boast in in someone being tortured to death? I mean, I would think if, if we walked up on some people having a conversation of people uh, laughing, joking about someone uh, being executed, that we would think that's a little out of bounds. But here we're saying to boast in, to brag about somebody being crucified. The only way that that makes any sense 
is if what we've already studied in Philippians chapter 2 is true. That Jesus Christ is God who humbled himself and laid aside his glory and came as a bondservant and then humbled himself even farther and went all the way to the death of the cross. And in doing that, he actually atoned for our sins. He actually satisfied the wrath of God where we can actually be saved. And if that's true, that ought to be our eternal boast. And you know, here's the, the reality of heaven. You know, if we could save ourselves or even contribute to our salvation, heaven would be like, hey, this is what I did to get here. What would you do? Can you compare to this? I mean, think how awesome I was that God accepted me. I mean, I I earned it this way. How would you earn your ticket here? And wouldn't that be horrific? I mean, does that sound very heavenly? And that's why Scripture says that no flesh should glory, no flesh should boast in His presence. The only boasting that we're going to do in heaven is what we've just done for the last 20, 25 minutes to sing the song of the Lamb who was crucified for us, to sing of the grace of God, to sing of the cross, to sing of the resurrection, to worship Jesus crucified, risen, glorified because of what, we, what He's done for us. And you see, that's what it means to be a Christian. It's to boast in Jesus Christ. But then this next phrase here, it says, he said to have no confidence in the flesh. You see how, how those two go together? If we have confidence in ourselves, we're going to boast about ourselves. If we have no confidence in our flesh, in our own ability to save ourselves, we're going to know then that only Jesus can save us, so we're going to, our confidence is going to be in Him, and then our boasting is going to be in Him. You see, that's how worship becomes an expression of faith. If we believe Jesus, we can't help but worship Him and sing about Him. So, I want you to think about it this way for a second. So, I, I don't know how many of you know who Chuck Colson is. Um, probably a lot of you do. Some of you may be uh, a little young. But, you know, Chuck Colson went to prison during the Watergate s- scandal. He was known as um, Nixon's hatchet man. And uh, during that process, he got saved. He started a ministry called Prison Fellowship and has written several books. I mean, I, I think. Three of the best Christian books that have ever been written are his books, Loving God, The Body, and How Now Shall We Live? And in one of those books, he, he tells a story about, um, you know, he, in addition to leading prison fellowship, he spoke a lot. And some of his speaking engagements would be, you know, kind of fundraising engagements for prison fellowship. And so he spent a lot of time with uh, wealthy businessmen and, and, and women. And so he had an engagement like that, and he's in this room, and there's maybe 20 or so uh, business people uh, there. And uh, a man that he, he called Mr. Abercrombie had invited him, and you know he was like an upstanding pillar of the community kind of th- guy, and you know religious, and he was a leader in his church. 
church and he's wealthy. And as part of this, uh, you know, he's trying to raise money, but he's also sharing uh, his testimony and he, he's, he's sharing the gospel and this kind of thing. And, and one of the things that, that, that Colson shared is when he was in audiences like this, he liked to use a particular line to get people's attention. When he knew he was dealing with self-righteous people, he liked to say something that he knew would get a reaction, that it would in some cases even be offensive, maybe like some of Paul's wording in Philippians 3, 2. And so here's what he would say. He would say that we are more like Adolf Hitler than we are Jesus Christ. We're closer to being Adolf Hitler than we are to being Jesus Christ. And here's the thing that I know. If you're not a Christian, that's probably offensive to you. He's like, who, me? I'm nothing like Adolf Hitler. But if you are a Christian, you get that. Because your testimony is... I am what I am by the grace of God. And maybe I've not done exactly the things that he's done, but I've sinned many ways and in many times. And my heart condition, apart from Christ, is not any different. And I'm separated from Jesus Christ by my sins. And, and, and I need Jesus. He is my only hope. No confidence in the flesh, but boasting in Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. Now, look at what he goes on to say here. Verse 3, the end of it, he ended with, have no confidence in the flesh. But then he says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. In other words, this is what he's saying. He's saying, you think you can save yourself? You think you can earn your way to heaven? I'm telling you, if anybody could do it, it was me. But as we read this, let, let's balance this out with what Paul uh, also said when he called himself the chief of sinners. Okay? But in other words, he's saying, if, if you think you can trust in yourself and you can earn your way to heaven... See how your spiritual resume stacks up to mine. And here's what he says. He says, circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, he's saying, I'm one of God's chosen people. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. In other words, he's saying in terms of outward righteousness, I had it all together. I mean, none of us are going to compare to the Pharisees. I mean, many of them memorized the entire Old Testament. Most all of them uh, memorized the first five books of the Bible. Anybody here got Leviticus memorized? <laughs> I mean, some of you have never even been able to make it all the way through Leviticus. So, um, I mean, in other words, he's saying, how do you stack up here? I mean, they would go in their spice rack and tithe on that, not just money. I mean, they were incredibly religious, incredibly zealous, incredibly devoted. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. In other words, I was so zealous for this. When somebody opposed it, or I thought they were opposing it, I persecuted them. 
said, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But he says, what things were gain to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. And here's the point. Our spiritual problem is not a lack of trust. It's trusting in the wrong things. Isn't that what Paul was saying there? It wasn't a lack of faith, but he was trusting in his circumcision. He was trusting in his law-keeping. He was trusting in his zeal. He was trusting in being a good Pharisee. He was trusting in his Jewish ethnicity. He was trusting in his religious heritage. He had all of these things going for him, but he says, I count that all loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. In other words, what are we trusting in? And and, and do you get the the implication of what he's saying here? Just to go back to the beginning, it can't be Jesus plus. Are we trusting in Christ alone? Or is it, yeah, I know Jesus died on the cross, but, you know, I got to do this, that, and the other, and I'm not that bad, and, you know, I, I need to help Jesus out here. Where is our faith? Is there confidence in Christ or is there confidence in ourselves? You see, the issue is not a lack of confidence or it's not even too much confidence, but it's misplaced confidence. Now, why would self-confidence be misplaced? Let me give you a couple of reasons. First of all, self-confidence is misplaced because of our sinful nature and actions. You see, all of this isn't enough to save us because at our core, we're sinful. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, and Bible scholars debate this, but I believe at this point he's writing from the perspective of being a Christian. But he said, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. You feel the struggle? He says, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that in my flesh, in my natural man, nothing good dwells. Do you believe that about yourself? Because if within ourselves nothing good dwells, then what do we have to offer? What do we have to boast about? What do we have to be confident in? Now, some people may push back and say, "Uh, we're all good, you know, we're okay. The sin stuff, I mean, you know, that's are you really talking about sin in the 21st century? I thought you guys advertised yourself as a contemporary church. That's so far behind the times. I believe in the depravity of mankind. I believe in our sinfulness. Why? Let me just give you a few reasons. Small children. Two-year-olds, they're evil, right? (laughs) Did you train them to do evil? 
No. It's in them. It's in them. And if some of you don't have kids yet and you're not buying this argument, just come back and see me in a few years and you'll be agreeing with me then, right? Um, How about history? The news. If we're so good, why is there so much bad? I mean, where, where, where did all that come from? And, 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 of course, what a lot of people would say is, you know, we're good, but society has corrupted us, and that's the problem. But, but I, I would say two things about that. Number one, you know, when I was at Carson Newman, I minored in sociology. And, and this is one thing I never got about sociology. If, if a society is made up of people, and people are so good... How did society get so bad to corrupt all the good people into being bad? It never exactly added up to me. But here's here's the other thing I would say. You know, people say socialism, Marxism is the answer. You know, classless society, we're naturally good. You remove these outward uh, uh, barriers and distinctions and all these kind of things. Then we'll have utopia. If all this is true, why is it that socialism down through the centuries has led to the slaughter of tens and tens of millions of people? And that's just historical fact. When I look in the mirror, I don't have any doubt that we have a sin nature. I mean, just the fact that we have a conscience... I mean, why should an atheist ever feel guilty about anything? I mean, just reason. C.S. Lewis said, if no set of moral ideas were truer or better than any other, there would be no sense in preferring civilized morality to savage morality or Christian morality to Nazi morality. The moment you say one lot of morals is better than another, you are in fact measuring them by an ultimate standard. Anytime we use words like good and evil or right and wrong, we are assuming an absolute standard, which implies there is someone who is an absolute standard giver that we're going to have to answer to someday. William Lane Craig put it this way. He said, so if there is no God, what foundation remains for objective moral duties? On the naturalistic view, human beings are just animals, and animals have no moral obligations to one another. When a lion kills a zebra, it kills the zebra, but it does not murder the zebra. When a great white shark forcibly copulates with a female, it forcibly copulates with her, but it does not rape her, for there is no moral dimension to these actions. They are neither prohibited nor obligatory. So if God does not exist, why think we have any moral obligations to do anything? Who or what imposes these moral duties on us? Where do they come from? It is hard to see why they would be anything more than a subjective impression ingrained into us by society and parental conditioning. But the idea is, if you believe that something is wrong, if you say, that was murder, that's wrong, that's evil, that was rape, that's murder, that's evil, 
Number one, it's implying you have a soul. And the idea that you have a soul implies there is a God. And when you say that's wrong, you're making an absolute statement, even if you say you believe there are no absolutes. And if there are absolutes, those had to come from some transcendent being outside of us to make them absolute. So we're back to God, and the Bible says that God is the judge of all of our sinful actions. That the wrath of God is poured out against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. It says that he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained by raising him from the dead. Jesus said the Father has committed all judgment unto the Son. Someday we're going to stand before Jesus and answer for him. So our sinfulness removes any grounds for self-confidence. Think about it this way. So again, think about Paul, you know, and how he said he stacked up here, you know, all this righteousness. So think about it this way. Think about if you got Jesus up here and he's kind of the example. You'd think, you know, Paul with all this be really close to him, right? But then you got like Mother Teresa. I mean, I mean, think of everything she did. You know, you got Craig Groeschel. He's the pastor of the biggest church in the United States and you got Tim Tebow, you know, he's got the biggest biceps of any Christian uh, around. I mean, you know, he's like a Christian celebrity. He's known for that. But you know what all these people would say, you know, what it would look like? Uh, go to the next slide, if you would, Jennifer. To them, there's just a great gulf. And, and, if, and if it works this way, where would we put ourselves on that ladder? But the point is, back to Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The standard is not how good we think we are or how we compare to other people. The standard is Jesus and his perfection, and all of us fall short of that. It's kind of like, you know, if you're trying to get into a college, and like they require a 32 on the ACT to get in, and you and your friend both take it, and you make a 31, and your friend makes a 17, you can say, man, I'm so much smarter than my friend, but at the end of the day, both of you fell short, which is actually the issue. It's not how close we got, it's how far short that we fell. And so, Paul would, would say to us, Scripture would say to us, if we're trying to do, you know, he uses the, the word count here that we're going to look at again in a minute. It, it's an accounting term. So we're going to think about this in terms of accounting. So go to the next slide, Jennifer. So think of it in a sense, just name our sins. Here's, here's a few possible ones. And you think about it in accounting terms. Sin is like a debt that we owe God. Okay? And so we all have this debt. So then the question comes, comes, how do we pay this debt? And again, a lot of us think we pay this debt off. You know, we can earn our salvation, good deeds, church attendance, being a good person, those kind of things. But what I want us to see, what Paul is saying in these verses, is that self-confidence is misplaced because self-effort does not make us right with God. So, Here's what a lot of people think. Go to that next slide. A lot of people think that this would be like, for Paul, his accounting sheet. So, yeah, he had some sin. He called himself a sinner in other places. But he was circumcised. He was a tribe of Benjamin. He was Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was zealous. He was blameless in keeping the law. So I can balance out my spiritual balance sheet. 
You ever had somebody say that to you? Uh, you know, I, I'm balancing out my sin with the good I've done, or the good I've done outweighs the bad that I've done. Or maybe this is what it would look like uh, for, for us, okay? Here's a religious version of it. Here's what some people say. Yeah, I've got this sin, but I've been baptized, or I've gone through confirmation, or I've done some good works, or I go to church, I'm generous, I give a lot to charity, I, I'm, I'm a kind person, I'm, I'm a good person. So it's going to balance out. But what did Paul say? He said, I count all of this loss for the sake of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do you know there's a secular version of this too? Kind of leave religion out of it, but the secular version would kind of look like, yeah, I may have done some things that are wrong, but you know, I'm into social justice and, and, you know, and I'm taking care of, uh, you, you know, the, the world and, you know, I'm echo conscious and, you know, cancel culture, you know, we're canceling these people, we're taking care of these problems, or I do a lot of charity, I'm successful, I mean, I've done a lot of good things, so it's all going to balance out. But let me ask you a simple question, it's the, the title of uh, an Andy Stanley book, it's this question, how good is good enough? How do you know that you've ever done enough? Who sets that standard? Who even said that, quote, goodness was actually good? Or, or doing some good things made us good. The Bible says that our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. I mean, how good is good enough? What does God say? God says... All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that the only way, there's two ways you can get to heaven. You can be, perfe you can be perfect or you can be perfected by the blood of Jesus Christ. How good is good enough? You know, one of the things that separates true biblical Christianity from every other religion in the world is the idea of grace. You study every other religion, it's based on works. It's the do plan. Christianity, though, is the done plan. It's based on the finished work of Christ and the free offer of grace through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's the gospel. But think about it this way, too. If, if you saw me when my kids were little, and you heard me say to them, Kids, if you do this, this, and this, and if you're good enough, and if you don't do this, this, and this, then I love you. What would you think about me? Think I was a bad dad, right? You would judge me harshly and rightly. But that's what, exactly what religion says about God. But you know what the good news of grace is? God says, in Christ, I accept you like you are, where you are. And then I change you. You see, I mean, God deals with their sin. He, he, because, again, you know, if, if a parent says, oh, I love you so much, go do whatever you want to do, that made me a terrible parent because that's going to end up ruining their lives. God's not that way. But he loves us unconditionally, not based on what we've done. Despite what we've done, he loves us in Christ. So because of our sinfulness... And because self-effort 
doesn't save us. It's misplaced confidence to trust in ourselves. Well, what does that leave us to be able to trust in then? Well, Paul gives us the answer in the rest of the passage. Starting in verse 8, he says, Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, from who, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him. And this is talking about knowing Him personally, not just head knowledge, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So to the way then Paul ties all of this together and what he's been working towards is this idea that the only way to be right with God is to place all of our confidence in Jesus and none in ourselves. That's the gospel. The only way to be right with God is to place all of our confidence in Jesus and none in ourselves. What are you trusting in? In Romans chapter 4, Paul said it this way. He said, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something, here's that word again, to boast about, but not before God. In other words, if his own words work say to him, he could boast. But here's what it goes on to say. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's the gospel all the way back in Genesis. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now notice this. He says, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Do you understand what that means? Think about uh, the the spreadsheet there. And we'll get back to this in a second. In a second. But he's saying, if you think you're working off the debit column by your good works, that's not getting credited to you. That's just adding to your debt. He says, but to verse 5, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So Here's what it looks like. These things that we think are credits, this passage says to us, they're actually debits. It's just adding to our sin. Because when we're trusting in these things, we're trusting in ourselves and not Christ. And we're glorifying ourselves instead of Jesus. So we're just adding to our debt. So what all of this is saying is, if we want to be saved, we have to bring all of our debt, all of our sin, all of our self-righteousness, all of our self-effort to the cross. And through the cross, our debt is canceled. 
We're forgiven by Jesus. And, and not only is our debt canceled and we're forgiven positively, the righteousness of Christ, all of his perfection, all of his obedience is now credited to us. And that is what is in the credit side of our spiritual ledger. All the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's what it means to be justified, to be declared righteous in the sight of God. It's not an inherent uh, righteousness. It's not an, an earned earned uh, righteousness. It's a, an imputed righteousness. It's an outside righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus credited to me. See, what happened on the cross is Jesus bore all of our sins. And when we do what uh, 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 verse 9 says here, when we uh, stop trusting in our own righteousness, but we start trusting in Jesus, his righteousness is credited to our account. Our sin is placed on him. His righteousness is placed on us. We're made right with God. We know Jesus. We're made new. This is what it means to be a Christian. And, and, And if this is true... I have no ground to boast in myself. I have nothing to be confident in within, within me. And so a Christian then is someone who boasts in Jesus and has no confidence in his or her own flesh because he did all the work. Who are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in Christ alone? You know, to circle back around to the Chuck Colson story I told you before, you know, we're more like Adolf Hitler than Jesus Christ. He said when he said it on this particular occasion, there were some people who were offended. But the man who was the host asked to talk to him afterwards. He said, I don't have what you have. And Chuck Colson said, but you can. And... He shared the gospel with him. And this man repented not only of his sin, but his self-righteousness. And he gave his life to Jesus that day. Jesus saved him that day. He trusted Christ. That's a better way to say it. And so, again, this is the gospel. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He made us in his image. He he created us for a relationship with himself. We've all rebelled against him. We've all sinned. We've all gone our own way. We've all missed the mark. We've all chosen to do what we want to do. We have no righteousness in ourselves. We're not capable of making ourselves right with God. Again, when we try to do that, It's not counted as grace, it's counted as debt. That means our only hope is the grace of God. And the grace of God is Jesus, who is very truly God, came and took on flesh, added humanity to his deity, lived a perfect and a sinless life, died on the cross in our place, paying the penalty of our sin, dying the death that we deserve to die, bearing our sin, absorbing the wrath of God, suffering our punishment for us. And then he rose from the dead, demonstrating he's the Son of God, demonstrating he's the Savior of the world. And he says that when we trust him, which means we admit our sinfulness, 
we turn from our sin to him, admitting that we cannot save ourselves, giving up on our self-confidence, our self-righteousness, and just coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I deserve your punishment, but forgive me. I I believe in you. I trust in you. I trust in, in you alone. I trust in what you have done for me on the cross. Forgive me. Save me. Change me. That's what makes someone right with God. No confidence in the flesh. All of our confidence, all of our boasting in Him. Are you trusting in Christ, in Christ alone, for your salvation? Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me?